Ron Rapdalo here, Ronderings, with my friend and former improv teacher, Rick Andrews. Got really excited to have Rick on the podcast because we share very similar values, especially around equity and social justice in the world. And he's just an amazing teacher of improv. And so when you listen to Rick, you'll hear his story about how he got into improv and why he teaches it, not just for improv students, but he teaches it in different venues to have folks learn how to listen better to each other and collaborate better. So check him out and Leverage Publishing Group. We are looking to ghostwrite and publish first-time authors. Check us out, leveragepublishinggroup.com. Peace. What's going on, Rondering's fam? Excited to be here with the brilliant improv master maestro, Rick Andrews. I had the privilege of Rick being one of my improv teachers, or the only improv teacher I think I've had, although I've had a lot of teachers teach me improv and I'm calling it that, at the Magnet Theater pre-COVID. I think this might've been 2017 or 2018, Rick, when I took a level one class with you and was just um, incredibly you know, struck by your teaching presence and the power of improv to teach us lots of things in life, including how to be more human and how to listen better to people. So everyone, Rick Andrews, how you doing, man? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get right into it, my friend. What is your story? Uh, I'm an improviser. What that means. I feel like I've met some people recently. They're like, what's your job? And I'm like, I'm an improviser. And they're like, oh, so you like don't have a job? <laughs> It's <laughs> so like every creative, whenever you say something yeah. that's in that world, it's like, how do you pay bills? Do you what? Like, if it's thought I mean, like, I do whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. But no, I, uh, so I teach and perform improvisation at the Magnet Theater, and I uh, teach in the acting program at Columbia. And I do a lot of workshops with different companies doing like team building, public speaking training, executive presence type stuff, uh, all using improvisation as the kind of training base for that. Yeah, I started doing improv when I was a teenager at like a theater in Boston. It was not a program for children. <laughs> like we were, me and my 12 year old friend were like in there with adults. I think they must have needed the cash because they were like, no, it's fine. <laughs> and I'm sure we were really annoying, but we really loved it. And I did it all through middle and high school and uh, performed on a team in college. And, and that was a great experience and kind of moved to New York to to grad school, but also pursue improv. And after a year, I quit grad school to just try to do improv full time. And hmm. that's a really bad decision on paper, but it worked out in practicality. And yeah, it's been my full time job for 13 years now. Yeah, I love it a lot. I'll talk about it all day long. Yeah, I'm obsessed with it still. And uh, it's really fun. When you first took that improv class, Rick, what hit you? How did you know, like, oh, my God, this, this is whoa, I was young. And I think I came to it in hindsight, kind of like for the wrong reasons. Like I thought I was really funny or like uh, I liked to be funny. I wasn't like popular by any stretch, but like my group of friends and I, we, we would, we watched Monty Python and kids in the hall and SNL. Yeah. We liked yeah. to make each other laugh. But I think, you know, looking back, I don't know if anyone else went through this phase where like, we weren't like saying anything original. We would just like repeat like movie quotes to each other. <laughs> like we wanted to be funny, but if you like make something up, it might not be funny, but if you just say a quote, it's like, well, that's from the movie. Like, yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of liked comedy. I knew what improv was from Whose Line Is It Anyway, which they used to show the like British version reruns on Comedy Central. 
And then when I started doing it, I was like, this is so much fun, but it was, I was so bad at it because I was like a really, I had pretty bad ADD as a kid. And I was just a really bad listener. Like I would all the time be in scenes and the teacher would be like, Hey, did you hear him say we're <laughs> you were like in the movie theater? And I'm like, it was like, uh, we're not what? <laughs> yeah. Just like me, like not paying attention. Right. So yeah, you know, it was, it was a good challenge for me. I think, uh, I think there's also something about being around adults. It's like, you know, I kind of, I looked up to a lot of people and I wanted them to think I was good. And it, it forced me to try like, you know, not just be a little snot, but to like really try to like yeah. focus and, and get better at it and, and do well. And I had a lot of really kind patient teachers and classmates who, who helped us do that. So yeah, it, it, I very quickly learned like, oh, it's not about trying to be funny. This is about building this thing together. And it felt very like those moments where the scene or the show went really well and you kind of got like lost in it. It was like my first real introduction into like flow state, which I think as someone who is like, super ADD, I just like had not at all like mm. any experiences with like, uh, now I get that through improv and sometimes running and writing. And like, I, I kind of understand that or just walking around the city sometimes. But I think as a kid with my attention kind of going everywhere, it was a real yeah nice way to get this kind of more meditative, almost type, type of experience in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I think that's part of what, what hooked me. Yeah. But right away, I was like, this is my favorite thing. Like I was, I was into it. Would you say, and I, I'm wondering, Rick, because first of all, thank you for sharing for our audience that you you have ADHD, because I found that there are number- ADD. I ADD. Was, uh, how dare you, first of all? No, oh, sorry. <laughs> no bad Ron Rapazal, not listening yeah. myself. Yeah, like I wasn't super hyperactive. I was like a hyper kid, but I wasn't like off the walls, but I was like, couldn't pay attention. Yeah. But if I was like focused on something, I was obsessed with hockey as a kid. I, mm. Like every two months, I would take out all my hockey cards and like rearrange them. And like I would, I would spend like hours yeah. doing that. But like I had to be held back in kindergarten because they were like, Rick is really smart, but he like can't. He just, if he's not interested, he's like not paying attention. Mm. So it was, it was, yeah, it was like, it was less that I was like a, a wild child and just more like, what's that? Ooh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What did they say? You know, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, thank you for schooling me on that. So <laughs> I was, that was mostly much, a joke, but yeah, but there is, yeah, yeah. How much did improv help you with your ADD? Because it's I might say from yeah your story of like it seemed to focus you to help you be a better listener. There are things like yeah. So I'm curious what your story is on that. It's a good question. I don't know how much is correlation or causation. I I was on like Ritalin pretty young. Okay, and. When I hit puberty, I remember that the way the drug affected me started to change. And that was around the same time I started doing improv, where I kind of felt very dulled by the medicine. And I, mm. I, I kind of quickly went off of it. Yeah. Because I just kind of felt like I was like, not really myself. And, but I also feel like I got less ADD once puberty kicked in. Like, I think my brain chemistry was changing a little bit. And, and maybe it was through improv. Like, I was learning how to focus a little more. Um, yeah. But it was definitely kind of like I had to figure out like different strategies for certain things or different ways to kind of study or get my work done or pay attention to things. And it's about that time I got into music and I feel like I, I always like have a song in my head. I'm always like kind of tapping out like a song. I feel like a lot of my ADD kind of went into my fingers. <laughs> just mm, me like drumming yeah. along. You know, there are little ticks I kind of picked up. So I don't know how much of that was like changed by improv or if improv was just a great place for me to try to practice those things that were already changing in me where yeah. I really wanted to do well and I cared about it versus like math class at school. Like I just, I wasn't passionate about it. So you know, I would, I needed to focus because like, that's what the quote unquote right thing for me to do. But improv was like, okay, I really do care about this. I really want to try to pay attention. And even then it was kind of a struggle. So I think it was a good, um, it was a good laboratory for me to kind of practice those things for sure. Yeah. Well, you talked Rick about that move to New York city, 
which obviously I think what I know of the world of improv in the United States, right? I think people pursue improv in three cities. I'll name the obvious ones. I think LA, obviously Hollywood, right? There's a scene there. Chicago, right? With um, a second city, if I remember it right. Yeah. So improv, slight nerd, but not not really, right? It's just I love comedy, right? And then New York. Yeah, I only applied to grad schools in Chicago or New York because <laughs> I knew I wanted to keep doing improv. Uh, and I was studying... Um, yeah. I was studying like research psychology, like social and personality psychology. So I, in my head, I was like, okay, I'll make, I'll become like a professor and then I'll try to get like a job at a university somewhere where I can also keep doing improv and I can kind of do both of these things like simultaneously. Cause it just didn't seem to me like I could have a job. If you told me then I was like, oh, you can just go do improv full time. I would have just tried to do that. But that wasn't, that didn't really seem like a viable option. There's no like kind of career path for that. So yeah, I only applied for Chicago, New York uh, places pretty much. And uh, yeah, like I think when I moved to the city, you know, I, I liked I liked psychology. I didn't like love the act of being a grad student as much. I didn't hate it, but I didn't like, I wasn't passionate about it. And I think having this other thing that I was very passionate about. Yeah. And then when people were starting to like pay me to like run rehearsals and stuff, it was like, oh, people like pay me to do this fun thing. Like that seems wrong. Uh, I like doing this. You shouldn't pay me. You know, it's like that kind yeah, of feeling. Of then it was like, oh, okay, maybe I can try to make a go, make a go of this. How did you choose where you wanted to do improv once you settled in New York? Because obviously, at least from what I see of like, as a consumer, part-time of improv, there's a lot of places to see improv, right? And so how did you find where your, your space was, the place you needed to be? Yeah, so when I moved to New York, I'd been doing improv for like about 10 or 11 years. And I had already taken a bunch of kind of workshops out at different improv festivals from, okay. from people. So I, I knew Armando Diaz, who is the owner of The Magnet. I had taken a workshop with him in Boston probably when I was like 14 or something uh, and really liked it and liked his vibe. I remember I knew that he wrote on the UCB TV show. And I remember like during our break, just kind of like bothering him about like, did you write that one episode where the, this thing happened? And he was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that one. And he was just like really nice and patient with me. Hmm. I taken a bunch of workshops with some UCB folks, uh, including Amy Poehler and Ian Roberts, when they were like kind of originally kind of traveling around and kind of teaching their their thing. Uh-huh. And I really liked the two of them, but I'd also had some workshops with some other folks who the energy wasn't great. And I never wanted to do like TV or film. And it felt like there was mm. more of an energy in the UCB community of kind of like Second City to a certain extent, I guess, but like this, like, oh, we're all doing this so that we can get really good and funny so that we can then go like do something else. And I always really liked to just do improv and get really into it. UCB also has a very narrow kind of band of the style that they want to, that they teach, the style that they want to see on stage. And I think I enjoy that thing, but I also enjoy like other types of it. It's kind of like going to like an art school versus like a school that's all about painting landscapes or whatever. It's like, I like landscapes, but I also want to like paint other stuff. Kind of felt that to a certain extent. So I took classes at UCB when I moved. I took classes at Magnet. I I had great experiences at both places, but I think I kind of quickly felt like I was really digging what I was seeing on stage at Magnet, what I was getting in classes. It just felt like it was very in line with a lot of the values that I had as an improviser, both in terms of like how to play on stage, but also just how to like treat people off stage and how to like, it was just like a really kind place. Um, Mm. You know, the people who were like high up at the theater, if you just like introduce yourself in the lobby, they would like talk to you and they'd be super nice. And they were like generally interested in like who you were. And, and it didn't matter that you were like kind of a kind of nobody. And I, I had a couple interactions that used to be where, I don't know. I remember talking to this one guy. I won't name who this person was. But... <laughs> so, no, no, no. 
<laughs> it was after show at one of the bar and I was like, hey man, blah, blah, blah. And he just gave me this like, who are you thing? And and then he like saw me in a show like not that long later. And afterwards he was like, oh man, I didn't know you were good at improv. Like, I don't think he didn't really say it in those words, but it was kind of like, oh, now we can hang out because like you're you're cool because you're not like, quote unquote, like one of the students. Like it just, it just had, that was the kind of vibe I got sometimes, not from everybody for sure, but there was, right. there, was an, there was enough of that it was like, ah, it kind of run me the wrong way. Mm. And it felt like there's always some of that everywhere, but it felt like the, the people who were, I really looked up to at Magnet were just all so kind and, and open and really talented. And so, yeah, I, I kind of quickly started doing stuff there. I got on a team there. I was really interested in teaching. That's that happened. I was coaching teams and, you know, kind of was quickly, you know, in that community and, and doing stuff there. Mm. So I'm really curious, Rick, because I've experienced the magic of you as an improv teacher. And I, I mean that seriously, because I think when you mentioned your story that when you first started improv, you were doing it for the reasons of thought you're funny. So be funny. And I think I entered level one being the same thing. People have known me to be funny. And one of the things I wish I would have told myself more is like, I'm more funny in context, meaning when I'm around mm-hmm. people and riffing, you just kind of playing off and not worrying about being funny. I'm actually really funny. But if I'm trying to be funny, it doesn't work. And so- Well, and you described, when you're with your friends, you're not trying to be funny. You're trying to have fun, right? You're just like being playful with the other people you're with, right? And I think that's the thing that makes for very funny improvisers. It's not that they're on stage trying to crack jokes or trying to kind of lay one out on the audience, but that they're just having like a lot of fun. And I do think it's like, it's just kind of figuring out the difference between those two things that like, you know, cause I do think like, if you like enjoy kind of goofing off and hang out, like, it's not that that's a bad thing to enjoy. Like I love that as well, but it took me a long time to kind of figure out how to translate that onto stage where it was mm. like, Oh, it's not about me kind of pitching a thing at you, but it's more about me getting to, I'm not performing for the audience. I'm performing for the other character. I'm performing me and the other person on stage are the people I'm most focused on. I, I'm trying to make yeah. them laugh. I'm not trying to make the audience laugh. Like I kind of, yeah. if, me and the, if me and my teammate have an awesome time and we are uh, cracking each other up and we're having a great show and the audience doesn't yeah. laugh, I, I kind of don't care. It, I'd obviously it, rather them enjoy yeah. it, but I'd rather that than like the, I'm having a terrible time on stage and the audience is for some reason loving it, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for me because when I've seen, as part of our homework, you told us you should see improv shows. If this is something you want to see in practice, you're going to get better by watching other people that are, a couple levels above you to see how the magic happens. And that experience of watching other improvisers laugh at themselves, I thought was really cool. It reminds me of like one of the things I enjoy in comedy most is watching other comedic actors make other people laugh in scenes. I think of the brilliant Tim Conway, always made Harvey Corman laugh. Otherwise, Har- I mean, Harvey Corbin did laugh a little bit more in the Carol Burnett show than he probably did. But like, I thought Tim Conway was brilliant because with, inevitably I'm like, uh-oh, he's going to find a way to make Harvey cracked. And Harvey always cracked. The dentist scenes with anesthesia. I mean, just like crazy stuff. And I'm just like, they are- Is that why it's more fun to watch like Stephen Colbert break than like Jimmy Fallon? Like, or Jimmy Fallon kind of- he breaks, breaks in every a, second. <laughs> well, he breaks in like a fake way where it's kind uh-huh. of like uh he's like it's a bit of a put on, but Colbert is so stone faced, so when he does break, you know it's genuine. And I think that's why the audience has a much bigger stronger reaction. This is also in, in an interesting way, like very similar to what I work on with people when I'm doing public speaking training, because I think there's a similar kind of dynamic where hmm. people aren't trying to be funny necessarily, but people spend 
they're trying to be interesting rather than be like interested, right? People are so much trying to kind of pitch to the audience rather than like get engaged in the thing they're talking about and and be present so that the audience can be present with your passion or excitement mm. or caution or whatever your your message is, right? And I think it's just such a scary situation for people that they feel like they need to kind of almost over-prepare, memorize every little thing they're going to say, and then they end up feeling kind of at best a little wooden, but at worst, like kind of not there in the room, right? Versus someone who's a really compelling speaker, it's like they're able to just get in the moment and be passionate about the thing they're doing. Like, there's some games that I've probably run 500, 1,000 times that like I can kind of introduce the game in my sleep, but I there's a way that I can do it where I'm kind of thinking about something else, but there's a way that I can do it where I'm like actually in, there with the group, right? And it's like, yeah. people are going to have more fun if huh. I'm actually there with them, like in, envisioning it with, the, with them. You can just tell the difference when someone's not trying to get you to, to feel a certain way versus they're just excited about stuff, right? Yeah. I'll have to talk to you offline because I know when we had barbecue in K-Town, which we have to do again, I can... I can do Korean barbecue all day. We found a local spot in Jersey City that is all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue. And I'm not even going to mention the name of the place because I don't want other people in Jersey City to start going, no, this is like really, it's a little, because it's like in our neighborhood. And I'm like, I don't want it to be overrun because it's really good. And in the relative world of Korean barbecue and price, all-you-can-eat, oh my God. (laughs) When I think about what I would pay, I went to 32nd Street, I'm like, Oh my. Yeah. We're all the difference, right? So I need to pick your brain offline about public speaking because I'm embarking on that career. And I think at some point I probably want to, because I trust you, Rick, and that matters to me as someone who can coach me on it. But I, I, I find what you just said about how to approach it resonates with how I tend to publicly speak anyways. Like I do better when I'm unscripted. I mean, I need a little bit of structure, but I, I'm such a good riffer that when I get in flow, like you mentioned doing improv, the best things I often say come in flow. There's also this like authenticity thing, which is like, I think a lot of times people don't realize that they're kind of modeling their behavior off of some preconceived notion about how it's supposed to look and sound. Those things are not culturally neutral. <laughs> and a lot, like, like I, this is why I don't love like power posture things. The, a lot of the supposedly correct ways to stand and speak look really weird if you're like, <laughs> a woman in like a pantsuit. Like they just don't feel comfortable. They don't look natural. And so what we're going to pick up as an audience, if you, now if it looks and feels natural for you, whoever you are, great. But if it doesn't, we're now, it doesn't come off as powerful. It comes off as someone who's trying to be powerful, which is kind of like the weakest state you can be in. It's like that Trumpian Mm -hmm. thing of like never admit faults. And it's like, there's actually nothing weaker than that because it just makes you seem so kind of desperate versus, you know, when someone's an expert and they say like, actually, I don't know, you know, it's like it actually gains you credibility in them because you feel like they're not bullshitting you. And I think a Mm. lot of times people approach public speaking through the lens of bullshit, through the lens of how can I convince a bunch of people of some stuff to do some things that they don't want to (laughs) do or to think that I'm the best in the world versus just like trying to communicate an idea authentically. And like when you ask people, you know, write down what what is a good public speaker? How do they sound? What kind of traits do they have? Everyone essentially writes down the same kind of TED Talky type of things, right? They don't say ums and uhs. They speak slowly. They pause. They make eye contact. They do X, Y, Z. But then we ask people to think of a, someone in their life that they love listening to talk and then describe that person. It is not people who talk like TED Talk people, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Right. Which I think has been my resistance to like 
entering the TED Talk world, even though I understand it builds visibility, and I've enjoyed many a TED Talk, I have friends who've done TED Talks, when I've talked to folks who are supporting my business strategies, and I think of like who I am, I'm like, I don't want to be contained in that box. I don't think it's me, frankly. And I, I have a lot yeah. of issues with like being told to be in the box you want me to be rather than accentuate my strengths and help me be better, which is almost how I think of improv right. and your approach as a teacher was like, we were also different as people. And yet like, you know, I know people at Ted and I, I don't, but I think this is kind of a thing that people are doing to themselves. Not that Ted is like, I don't think Ted is going like, you need to talk like this. Right. Like I think, yeah, I think there are ways in which when you're pu- speaking publicly, like I probably need to slow down if like, I am teaching or right. doing a thing. I talk so, too yeah. fast. Right. That's there for like clarity. But if I slow down to Ted talk rate, I'm not going to feel like myself anymore. So there's this middle ground between, you know, if I really speak very slowly with emphasis, like that's not going to feel like me, but if I, talk blah, 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 it's, it's, it lacks comprehension, right? So there's this kind of give and take between making your idea communicable versus like making it authentic. And I think what's happening is not that TED or any other thing like this, I mean, I, I'm not picking on TED in particular, but you know, any kind of work-based public speaking thing or giving talks or things like that. You have this in podcasting too, where people have like what I call podcast voice. It's like that NPR voice. Oh it's like my a little, God, I it's know. Like, it's, it's just like putting a little thoughtfulness in your voice for no reason, right? There's... <laughs> It's Jesus. all kind of unconscious rhetoric in imitation. Yes. And mm. I think that can ultimately gain you short-term credibility at the long-term loss of your authenticity versus I think when people really connect to people, it's kind of like they seem kind of authentic in themselves. And, yeah. you know, there's a sense that like, oh, that person is communicating to me in a direct way. They're not necessarily trying to get me to feel one specific thing. They're just telling me their perspective or giving give me an idea. And they let the, the listener be involved and engage with that and then come to their own place rather than really try to force people there. Um, hmm. You know, I think that like, I don't think about public speaking as like selling an idea. I think that's the wrong the way to think about it necessarily. Yeah. Because th- think about it in sales. I mean, if you go into a store and someone comes up and really starts to hard sell you on a thing, I mean, how does it make you feel? It personally makes me feel uncomfortable because oh, I feel like I'm being manipulated, know. right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I think sometimes we approach public speaking that way. I got to really come up here and like, you know, the way that like companies, people are encouraged to like pitch their product and pitch their thing. It's the Simpson salesperson. I forget his name. I see that. I'm like, oh my God. That's like, but I know people like, and and so many of my, the other inbox in my LinkedIn messages is filled with messages that feel like that. I'm like, and and does it work? I mean, it's like, it's, it it feels, it's immediately so disingenuous, right? Yeah. And I think I've learned so long ago that when you approach people, trust first, transaction second. That's been such a big thing for me that I learned from my parents at a young age. And I think this go like it makes me think of improv, right? Trust your partner, partners first. The transaction yeah. of like the the brilliance happens when you learn to trust each other. And so there's also this kind of thing underneath that that's like yeah. if you're selling me so hard on something, I kind of assume that it must be bullshit. because it's like when everyone's like telling you that oh this is the next big thing you got to get in on nfts and it's like why like if it's so obviously the next big thing why are you all trying so hard to push me on it versus like you know if it was such a good opportunity you'd kind of shut up about it (laughs) you know i mean like i think there's this thing ball, right yeah not telling anybody about that (laughs) yeah right there's this thing of like you if you are in a business and you have a good solution that's going to help someone you know, just explaining 
hey, this is what I do and this is what's helpful. And if someone needs that thing, they're like, oh shit, I need that. And you know, that is a great way to create a relationship versus trying to create a need where it isn't there or just, you know, message someone on LinkedIn and be like, here, I need you to buy this. Pro-. Like, oh, you need X, Y, and Z. It's like, <laughs> I've never sold a workshop that way. I, you know, people know what I do you know, and I trust that if people like need what I do, they could like reach out to me. And I feel like I have much better outcomes that way versus coming in with some kind of hard sell on everybody or trying to, you know, I don't know, create, create a need. I think a lot of what we think about this idea of like everyone being their own personal brand makes me uncomfortable personally. Mm, okay. I'm not saying that's like the wrong thing for anybody else, but like that definitely is not how I want to feel because <laughs> yeah. it feels that I'm kind of like selling me. And then I'm kind of, like you said, I'm putting myself into a box. Like I'm kind of drawing everything down and I don't know. I, I, I'm always wondering, is there this middle ground between, you know, having good materials and having good promotion and, and communicating what I do without feeling like I have to reduce myself to this, this thing, like how a company would. You know, it's like, we've got to have this sales pitch. We got to have X, Y, Z, and we got to move this thing. Like, you know, I think maybe this is just because what I do is very human to human in a room, kind yeah. of personable. I just feel like if I'm coming in with this, like, you know, it's my face leaning on my hand and like my right. signature below. And it's like the Rick Andrews method. And it's like, it just doesn't feel. <laughs> I buy that. How much does it cost? <laughs> yeah. It's $40,000, you know, like. Because <laughs> let me Venmo that to you. <laughs> I don't know. If I really believed in that, yeah. then maybe it wouldn't come off as inauthentic. But I know that I don't, that's not how I want to approach things. So it's like, I want my brand to be uh, just me. <laughs> you know, you know what I, mean? I don't know. I'm probably like ineffective at it ultimately and leaving, you know, stuff on the table. But I'd rather have that than, and feel like I'm having good interactions with my clients and that I'm actually like helping people solve problems and I'm not like pushing myself into situations where I can't actually help people. Like if someone me emails me and they're like, hey, I, I'm, we need help. I need help with change management. I, you know, it's like, cool, like I, I can bullshit you on it where I can be like, I actually don't know much about that. And like, I'm not sure that I'm like the best fit for, but here's, you should talk to this person. They're great. You know, absolutely. I think in the long run, that person is likely to trust me more because I didn't bullshit them. Right. And if they do actually have a need that I can help them with later, come back to me versus if I give them a bunch of bullshit and then don't actually help them, they're never going to come back to me. Right. Yeah. So I think I try to approach these, like you said, like creating relationships and building trust first. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes I don't know. I don't know how you feel. You're 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 awesome on LinkedIn, and you're very yourself on LinkedIn. It's a long time coming. It's take it's taken a minute to get there. But, but yes. you've managed that magic trick of kind of being successful on the platform without just doing all the same stuff that everybody does. That kind of feels a little like inauthentic, like yeah, in brand posturing. And I think that that is hard in its own like unique skill. So. Yeah, I don't know. That's the end of my thought. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, when I think about it, right, you know, this idea of personal branding is one I have this complicated relationship with because Same. I'm really good at it. And when I demystify it for people, I'm like, you know, one of my favorite phrases comes from the philosopher and martial artist, Bruce Lee. There's way and there's no way. So I understand the things around personal branding. I did a workshop on it for a friend of mine at a foundation a month ago. I'm dangerous enough that I could teach it because people see my receipts all over social media. It's like, he's obviously a strong personal brander. I'm like, that is correct. And because I've never been formally trained in it per se, I might say learning to recruit and other things, I've learned things in talent acquisition that have helped me to personal brand because personal branding for me is just marketing myself and what values and things I want to put out there that is me, but isn't fully me. That's simply put how I describe it, right? And so some of it is, Everyone has a different line about who they want to present and how much they want to show of themselves. 
So I think the perfect personal brand ambassador today is Deion Sanders. I've been following this mildly. Like he's like a college football coach. You know, he, he was obviously a pro football player, but now he's like, he's had kind of like a controversial strategy with like putting together his team and he's been very brash about it, right? Is that the deal? Yeah, so, you know, Deion Sanders was one of the few two sport players right. in modern like sports history, right? He and Bo Jackson came up around the same time. And so Deion Sanders, Hall of Fame, cornerback, pro football, played major league baseball, did quite well, could have won the MVP of a World Series of the Atlanta Braves that they had won the World Series, batted like 500 of that World Series in 94. I mean, he, you think about like, wait, he had 500 in a World Series playing part-time and he was an all-pro cornerback? Like, Nuts. And my take is like, there's a brilliance about you that defies expectation. And he has a character. He's got Prime and he's got Dion. And I watched an interview recently where he's talking about that like differentiation. And from a personal branding perspective, he laughs because he's like, I am presenting something that people want to see. Is it part of who he is? Absolutely. Is it who he really is? Because he's like, no one wants Dion. Dion's introverted and wants to fish. People want prime, right? And I think some of it, frankly, has to do with like how people see his identity and they expect from what I take and having talked to some black folks about this, like a brash black man. Oh yeah. And we also want to see him fall. You can be confident. Yeah. I'd rather watch him fish. I mean, <laughs> maybe he's going to have a fishing channel, you know what I'm saying? But like, it, this is interesting. I, I feel like I was just having a conversation with a couple of people about Mr. Beast. Do you know who he is? Yes, he's a big like social media influencer who's like almost a billion followers or something like that. I've heard oh, the name. Oh, he, yeah, I mean, he's like the biggest YouTuber in the world. Yeah. It's funny. Like, this is what's funny about like this age. Like, he's probably the one of the five most famous people on the planet Earth. And you'll meet people who are like, I kind of don't know who that is. It, it's, it's, like, it's like someone being like, but, it, but it's just because these things are so splintered. Like I only, only barely know who he is because of YouTube. I'm like on YouTube a little bit, but if you're like not on YouTube, it's like you kind of don't encounter him because he's like not in movies. He's not in a thing. But yeah, his, his videos pretty much get like 200 million views like kind of right away, right? This, which is nuts. Yeah. His presence makes me uncomfortable and sad. He's giving away, he gives away a lot of money in his videos. Um, the reason he does that is because it works for the algorithm. He, he kind of, everything he does is stuff he's figured out that will make people click on and watch the videos. So all of what he does and the things he puts together is all reverse engineered from trial and error of what this supply side, what will people click on, what people watch, which I feel is ultimately kind of empty. Like it's kind of like, well, what do you want to say? <laughs> what, how do you see the world? And there are probably lots of little conflicting moments where, oh, I want to make a video about X, but like no one wants to, like that won't get as many numbers. And he's he's an interesting example because he's so far the other way of just like everything he does in his videos from the, what, the thumbnails to the way he edits them, the pace of them, it's all this trial and error to get more people to watch more of the video. And and he does all these big charity things, but it always feels a little gross because it's kind of like, you know, the only reason he's doing them is because they'll they'll get lots of views that only certain kinds, like he, he did um, a thing where he gave people, he fixed people's cataract. He was like, I, I, I helped a thousand people, blind people see for the first time. And he paid for a thousand people's cataract surgery. And he did it for deaf people as well to get a thousand people to get cochlear implants. Now that makes for a good video because he gets to film this moment where they see or they hear for the first time and everyone's going to click on watching that. But he, I don't know if he paid for a thousand people's drug resistant tuberculosis treatments. <laughs> that would have a much bigger impact on the world, honestly. 
those people are going to die if they don't get treatment and the, we have the treatment and we, they just don't have the money. But it's not going to make for a good video because it's not visual. You know, it's not in that way. So it's like the charity feels a little hollow and a little... So there is this thing of like, I feel like, you know, being aware of your audience and what people want to see, I think is a very helpful part of it. But there is something kind of sometimes a little backwards of like, mm. you know, kind of forming what I'm putting out there around like what people are resonating with. And I think these platforms cannot help but make you do that a little bit where like you make a post yeah. in a certain style and it goes kind of viral or wild and you're like, oh, I got to do more of that. And you post something else and it kind of, it's like, it doesn't do numbers. And then it's like, it kind of dissuades you from doing that certain thing. And over time, that that is as much shifting like your brand and who you are as like your own kind of personal preferences. Yeah, it's like the LinkedIn status updating like way to do. It's like sentence, like headline. Yes, yes, space, yes. Sentence. Space, sentence, sentence, space, sentence, space, sentence, sentence. Emoji, space. question mark? Yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> LinkedIn's not telling anyone to do that. Everyone's figuring that out on their own because when they do that, it gets like more close. And the same with the, every YouTube thumbnail slowly over time has become more and more similar. Like go to the Mr. Beach Beast page and the listeners feel free to do this and look at his thumbnails. He's making the same face in every video, which Ron, you'll be able to see now, but it's uh, people call it, I think they call it soy boy face. I don't know if that has like another weird connotation that I'm not aware yeah. of. Apologies if it does. But they're <laughs> like, it's him yeah. going like, oh, with his like mouth open. And like, it's this really, they actually like make his face bigger than it is in the thumbnail. Like they elongate the mouth so that it looks like he's really excited or surprised. Oh my, okay. But just people click on videos when it looks like someone's making a face, like something really exciting is about to happen, right? I think just being on like one platform or one thing and then you kind of getting used to that thing. I, I, I don't know that there's much, interpersonal danger there. But I think one thing that feels tricky is I feel like I know a lot of people are kind of like, they're on LinkedIn, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're on YouTube. And their personal brand is about making sure that all of these things are aligned and they're promoting and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that becomes kind of most of your life. <laughs> Thinking about what am I putting out there? How, what kind of what am I taking photos of? I'm going to lunch with a friend, could this be a post? Or is this not a post, right? Then, then you're kind of framing your whole life around what is content versus just like living your life. And then being like, what of this stuff that I've done can I put out there that might be helpful? It's, it's a fine line. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a good way to walk it. I, I'm curious from someone who's much more active and successful on, on LinkedIn, how if you've noticed that or if you have found a way to walk that. Yeah, or it's, um, you know, I think having been in the LinkedIn game for nearly 15 years. So I remember being a part of joining LinkedIn because I was always, I'm of the age I remember when there was no internet and doing AOL dial up and having chat rooms and IM and those things, right? Which you have to be a certain age to know what those things are, right? RGRJKD was my AOL IM handle because I was doing Jeet Kundo at the time in the early 2000s, right? And so I'll use it from like an emotional standpoint. It's all feel. I let how I feel dictate when I post, literally. So I'll give an example today. I had lunch with a, with a friend of mine. He's the CEO of a a national uh, nonprofit focused on getting more kids of color into coding, right? We had a good convo. And I had thought about it. I was like, this might be a good post, admittedly, because my mind does, I have some conditioning there, but it was like, if it don't feel right, I'm not gonna say, hey, let's go take a selfie. But then the selfie was not a, hey, let me talk about him and his work. It was a play on, because his name is also Ron. So I was like, Ron's spotting, just to be funny. Right. Because we had a whole conversation about it. I was like, yeah, do you know the Rons? He's like, not really. <laughs> so we just had this conversation. Right? I thought it'd be, it's like tongue in cheek. And then I tagged other Rons that I knew on LinkedIn. Hey, we all need to unite. Look at, you know, just, just to be funny, like to show a different side. Like I could have been like, CEO, blah, 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 blah. We had these, like, I was like, no. 
it's funny because I feel like some of this stuff requires a kind of like, like if you spend too much time thinking about how the algorithm works or trying to be successful at it, you'll probably be more successful at it, but it will probably take away from your enjoyment of your life <laughs> and using the platform, right? I, I agree. Like, yeah, that totally. like yeah. are you tagging other Rons because that's just fun? Or is there a part of your brain that's like, this will also get the post more engagement because it's going to tag more people and they're going to come and interact and come on the post. Or you can hold both those things in your mind at the same time. You know, it's like, and I think sometimes that's, it's that thing of like, you know, being aware of like what kinds of best practices there are. And then you have to make this judgment call of like, how much of this is like, oh, that's actually like fun or like an expression of what I want to do versus how much of this is just like, like when we see people who just are like, are just doing all these things. And it's just, it just feels like a very obvious, like they're trying to game the algorithm thing. It's like, it's why like, I feel like sometimes I'll go on LinkedIn and I'll like read a bunch of stuff. And I'm just like, man, like no one like says anything really insightful <laughs> where it's like, you know, I'll read these long posts about like work stuff. And it's like, it's just a lot of platitudes. It's just a lot of, it can be just like a lot of like, you know, teamwork is important. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, because if you get specific and you really try to nail stuff down, it, it might be controversial. You might kind of invite people who have different opinions from you. And then it kind of like, it doesn't feel like a LinkedIn thing, right? It's like, there's this really interesting thing of like, I'm giving a specific piece of advice, but one that like, isn't gonna be that controversial or isn't gonna really contradict anybody. LinkedIn is a very kind of, don't rock the boat platform, it feels like, versus Twitter is just like a trash controversy, right? Yeah, So yeah. It is that thing of like, I don't know, I wonder how, like when I've posted stuff that's like a really specific thing of like, hey, I've noticed this pattern, I just don't think this is helpful. Those posts don't do particularly as well as posts that are just like a little broader, but ultimately maybe a little less helpful because they're kind of like, it doesn't really apply to a specific circumstance, you know? And so it's kind of just about like, what it's like to work together on a team? And everyone's like, I agree, you know, but it doesn't, it's like, I don't know how much implementing people can do of that versus just like, hey, managers, I've noticed this thing in meetings. (laughs) Don't do this one specific thing. And, and then other people are like, well, I do that. And I don't, you know, X, Y, Z, right? It makes me wonder how much in the LinkedIn world, and this is pure pontification and, and like maybe connecting dots, right? Is that when I think of the data set that's on LinkedIn and how it's users, including you and I interact with it, right? That it might lean more towards pure speculation. I don't know the damn algorithm, right? But let's use our lived experience being on the platform, right? Of going towards celebration, accomplishment, and like certain kinds of like things that are more advisey rather than like, right. I'm really trying to solve something deep. Anything that's there, because they have like, let's be clear, the platform exists for engagement, just like all these platforms, right? And unfortunately, you zoom out. I don't think it's rocket science, but people should understand in the advent of social media, that one of the downsides of social media is that all of the advertisements that used to come through newspapers and funded newspapers and journalism in America have now come towards social media. And so I don't, that's an oversimplification of why newspapers are earning revenue, but at some very easy, big level, we have to understand what social media has done to journalism in American newspapers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's interesting comparing TikTok to LinkedIn. Yeah. Obviously they're, they're totally different purposes. But because of the way TikTok works, it's very good at surfacing. If you, if you have no following, you can still have a viral video on TikTok if your content is very engaging. And so then people try to game that system. Was there's that woman who was like eating popcorn, like everyone like kind of liked a live video or something like that. So something like this. I can't remember. It was not like ASMR video. Oh my God. Kind of. It was just like, if you liked the video, it would like show up over the thing and she'd be like, thank you and eat a piece of popcorn. And just like, so everyone's watching like, oh, I want to make her eat popcorn. And it's like, it's, <laughs> oh my God. it's kind of like gaming the system because then like more people are watching and engaging with the thing, right? Yeah. Versus on LinkedIn, if you don't have, 
many followers, it's hard to get as much engagement. And you do have to kind of correct. game the system. It's like, you know, in a perfect world, these systems all make sense where it's like, oh, the best content will be the most interacted with, right? But I don't know that that is true. I was talking with a friend who worked at a tech company on algorithms. We had this really interesting conversation about mm. like streaming. Yeah. So I probably spend more time on Netflix, but I would say the content there for me personally is much more disposable in my life than the stuff I watch on HBO, for example. Like the shows that I really Agreed. like that, that, that have really like touched me or made me change the way I think about the world, a uh, higher percentage of those are on H- HBO. So if I had to, if I had to cancel one of them- That is correct. Okay. Yes. If, if I had to cancel <laughs> one of them, I'd probably cancel Netflix. But if you just looked at my data, you would not predict that. You would say, oh, oh this person has watched X, Y, Z, right? So when, you know when I watch something, you can know how long I watch it, you can know how many times I watch it, but you cannot know that a week later, I'm still thinking about that episode of Succession or that it's changing the way I'm thinking about power or status or that the TV show Chernobyl is something that haunts me in my dreams. Or whatever, you know, yeah, that, no, yeah. That they don't have access to that data. And so it, it is that thing of like, okay, a piece of content that, and you see this, you really see this with Rotten Tomatoes. A movie that's like fine, but like not objectionable will have like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And a movie that is like, potentially amazing but is challenging will have like a 60 percent, and it kind of looks like well this movie is is amazing and this other movie is bad and it's like sometimes you watch them you're like this is like pablum (laughs) and it just is kind of not that offensive and this thing is like a really like you know it's it's a great movie but it is going to push you a little bit and some people aren't going to like it for those reasons but if you do like it it's going to really affect you right it's like we don't really we can't reach into people's brains and so i think sometimes these algorithms like by stretching up for like most engagement, it's like you kind of end up with like the most surface level engagement, almost by definition, right? Of like the stuff that gets the most shared on LinkedIn is the least objectionable, the stuff that people, the most people are gonna like on, the most the most people are gonna share. It's kind of like, you know, versus stuff that might actually be really engaging. This most engaging stuff I've seen on LinkedIn has been like within much smaller niche communities of like improv teachers asking a question to other improv teachers and then everybody who's an actual expert on that sharing their expertise. Once you mm. get to that kind of wider thing of like, we're talking to kind of all professionals, it yeah. starts to feel like everyone is kind of pitching to each other all the time. Yeah. Like everyone commenting is also trying to like work on their brand <laughs> and, and everyone posts is kind of trying to work on their brand. It's like, we're all just kind of promoting to each other. You know what I mean? And now LinkedIn has started like putting posts because I've been asked to participate in some, especially the world of like broader talent. We'd right. love for your perspective on this or we'd love for your perspective on networking, right? And so I shared something, you know, there's admittedly like I try to spend because I get it five to 10% of my time on those kinds of content the one thing that I've realized really early on with any, particularly LinkedIn, the more followers and connections I have, the more that I'm seen. LinkedIn, that's like candy. And so as I've slowly but surely built an audience of over 24,000 people, I often get told, Ron, I feel like you live in my newsfeed. I'm like, I, I guess I'm doing something right, but I don't post for it. Like, it's really, it's funny. Like, I think you've got like, I don't post to be in people's newsfeed. I post because right. I want to post what's on my mind and what I think is interesting. I mean, I try to find it's, that like it's that authenticity thing, yeah. right? That we we talked about earlier. That I think improv, like it's that thing, same thing we started talking about earlier of like yeah. you're trying to make your partner laugh, you're trying to make the audience laugh. And I do think it, it's tough on these platforms. I always it'd be interesting to think like, okay, what if what if tomorrow you post on LinkedIn and it yeah. goes, I'm talking this, and this doesn't really happen on LinkedIn, but let's say it goes like <laughs> mega viral. Yeah, you post the most insightful business post of all time, and and you go from twenty four thousand followers to 2 million followers. Yeah. That is definitely going to change your behavior, right? Yeah. It's hard not to. You're, you're going to start thinking like, oh crap, like everyone's listening to me now. Certain kinds of things you might've posted, maybe wouldn't post, 
maybe some of that is helpful and good of like, oh, this is kind of whack. Maybe I shouldn't post this. But probably some of that is just like more authentic stuff that you're worried that like such a larger audience isn't, everyone's not going to vibe with or it's not going to do the numbers. And and if you get a couple kind of big hits of the candy, then all of a sudden it's like you kind of keep wanting that, right? And yeah. I don't know. I, 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 um, it's an interesting thing to kind of understand how to manage. I've had some conversations with people about non-scalability. Yeah, okay. I don't want my business to be scalable. Like I am purposely not expanding my business. I'm trying to make less money than I could. Like no one talks about this. Maybe I should, maybe this should be a LinkedIn post. Yeah, this there's definitely a podcast topic. So let's, uh, I'm curious to hear this perspective from you. I get to do only things yeah. I want to do right now. Mm. I yeah. hire, get hired for workshops. I go and do them. Could I make 10, maybe 100 times what I make now if I, I, if I started a training company and I, you know, really delineated what I do and I hired salespeople and, you know, maybe I've had enough success with what I do that if I started just to try to scale that, I could at least probably 10 exit for, for sure. I think that, you know, it's just about like promotion and reaching more people. You have all these improv students you'd be training on what you do and other places sure. outside of improv that you'd have an easy audience to do that from. But the quality is going to go down, right? True. And I'm going to spend most of my time doing a bunch of stuff that I don't love doing. Being a, being a boss, being a manager, doing accounting. Bingo. Some people love yeah. those things. I don't love those things. And in a weird way, I, it's sometimes hard to explain to clients that like that's like an asset. An asset. Sometimes, I've, I've had occasional conversations with clients where they're like, what's your thing? And I'm like, uh, my thing is that I'm really good at this. <laughs> like, I don't have like a branded, the Rick Andrews method because I've spent like 25 years. I'm the guy who's just obsessed with this thing. And there is someone else who took a couple classes and made a really fancy website and, you know, wrote their own improv book and they've got better marketing materials, but that doesn't mean that they know what they're doing. And I, I, I think sometimes in business, we forget those two things are not necessarily correlated. You know, I, I want to spend as much of my time doing the thing I love and I want to, I want to get paid for that as well as I can. But it is just like, everyone is so focused on growth and on everything else that you just don't often encounter that. And yeah, I've seen this in, in to tie back to the social media stuff. I've seen this on some interesting online communities. Like the vlog brothers are really interesting. Hank and John Green, they, they made an interesting video a while ago about how they purposely don't, they're not trying to grow the size of their audience anymore because it's at this size where it feels like they, they understand the community and it's enough to kind of make it go. But then if it got bigger, it would all of a sudden bring in a bunch more people who kind of aren't about what they're about, which is they're about like kind of raising money for this charity they do and making all these very sweet videos. It's not about like making viral videos. And so, yeah, it's like, I do think that that's something that doesn't get talked about of like right-sizing your ambition. And it doesn't mean that you're like settling. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It just means mm. like, maybe you have a sense of like, what is what actually is going to make you happy at the end of the day? Is it a million followers and millions and millions of dollars. Most people I know who have those things seem pretty miserable. <laughs> they don't seem to be on a day-to-day level very happy. They seem scared that they're going to yeah. lose those things. And I don't know. I think we don't have good social constructs right now for how to right-size our ambition with what actually we'd like to do. What do you want? What is your day going to look like when you get up and go do things? Yeah. You know, how do you actually want that to feel? Um, I feel like I kind of stumbled backwards into having like a really good version of it. I didn't like design that. I just kind of was like, yeah. I love teaching improv. Let me do as much of that as possible. And now I'm in this place where I'm like, I now I'm scared of losing that. That's the thing that I'm more afraid of is not like making, you know, making less money. It's just like losing that thing of getting to spend my time in a classroom teaching people. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you have figured out where you get your joy and how you want to spend your time. Right. And there's trade-offs of it, obviously. Right. Because if you were to scale, you do less of what you most enjoy doing. Right. Right. It comes like I'm kind of at this intersection, like I'm 
entrepreneuring with my wife. She does, you know, Shinita, who you know, my brilliant wife, does something a little bit different than me, but it's kind of in the ecosystem of like coaching, professional development, training, right? We have that overlap there, but we do it in different ways, right? And I'm thinking about out loud is where do we scale and how much and why? And I think like what's in my brain, and I think similarly, she was like, we'll deal with it as it comes, but I don't want to like, give up some of the things that we enjoy right now as a family, right. which is our privacy. Like for me, there's this balance of when you get big, how much are you willing to give up of yourself? And I don't know, like, I don't know if we could ever be quiet billionaires. You've seen my personality. I don't know if I could <laughs> be quiet. You know what I'm saying? Like disappear off the grid. Like just, right. I realize a lot of who I am. And some of this is like personality and energy and extroversion is I get so much when I'm surrounded by people. Like it is joy to me when I'm around people. But I've also found as I've gotten older, Rick, I get more joy with this, the one-on-one. Being in mm-hmm. groups has a level of joy and energy that I enjoy. I enjoy being at a big concert. I enjoy being around a lot of people at things, but I get the most depth and joy at the one-on-one. Yeah, I'd be very happy just having lots of one-on-ones. Right. Right. And I have to ask myself, what does that really mean for where I want my business with Shanita to grow and prosper? Right. And so I don't I don't have the clear answer for that, but I love what you said about right sizing ambition. Because I think that's such yeah. a good phrase to use around what it because it comes with things, right? And it's a decision point to be really thoughtful about because if something happens and you didn't want that and it gets bigger, it's almost like getting something you can't control. Do you, uh, did you read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? Not yet. I've heard of the book. Um, oh, it's cool. probably on, I think Shanita probably has it because she's read it for grad school. So He's like a real deal psychologist, not like an airport book psychologist. Like he did most of the seminal studies on like cognitive bias. And he has a thing, mm. uh, a kind of cognitive bias he describes in the book that he, he calls, um, all you see is all there is. It, it's a really common one where we basically kind of make assumptions about what is true based on the things that are uh, visually salient to us. Right. What, what we can see. So like, let's take this, what we were talking about with LinkedIn just now, right? It does kind of feel like I should be trying to grow my business and upscale and, you know, hire and build my brand and all these things because everything you see on LinkedIn is people doing that thing. You know, if someone is working a C-suite executive job and they decide to just like retire early to hang out with their family, we're not, you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily hear about that on LinkedIn. Or you might even hear about it once. But you're not, you're not going to post every week, still playing golf with my family, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, they just kind of disappear from the platform. And, and so most of what the conversations you do see are about like pushing and more and hustle and this kind of the grind set and like all this kind of stuff that is, I think, a little toxic if it's all that you're getting fed. Yeah. And this feeling that like, I think combined with our media landscape and the way social media is designed for engagement and and being good at that means getting more people rather than just affecting people more. I mean, if you gave people the option of like, which would you rather have 2 million followers who all like your posts a little bit or 10,000 followers who all find everything you post very meaningful and impactful? You know, I, I feel like everyone is kind of at least operating on these platforms as if the actual goal is to get like 2 million followers who all like kind of like what you do a little bit, right? Versus trying to find that that place where you can deliver the most amount of value, even if that's in like a smaller space, right? I feel like that certainly has res- resonated with me in terms of the kinds of improv communities I've been involved with or mm. the places where I feel like 
yeah, like I'm not like famous. And I think that's probably for the best. But if you have a class and you have students who, you know, really find what you're doing impactful, that like is meaningful. I, I think I could kind yeah. of probably be more famous if I like worked, spent all these last many years trying to be on television. But then what am I going to get? You're going to get someone at the airport being like, hey, man, oh, you're from that thing. That was, oh, that movie was funny. You're like, thanks, man. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that's like, that's as deep as it goes, you know? Hmm. And maybe people are having kind of deeper impacts depending on what you're making, but it's like, you just don't get access to it. You don't get to really see it happen. So yeah, yeah I don't know. I think for me personally, this, and that's no knock on anybody doing any of those things for sure. This is, this is kind of me talking about where I'm at with my own yeah. set of ambitions. I want to get, I, there's these things I like to do. I, I, I want to get really, 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 really good at them. And if doing that helps other people in, in any way, that is my one, 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 a one B goal is the better I get as a teacher, the more people, the more impact I can make in the classroom and the more satisfying teaching is, you know, it's not yeah. fun being a bad teacher. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, like I, I wanted to ask this question before I asked you the rounder question, which is what does teaching improv look like in all these different contexts that are not teaching a straight improv class yeah. at magnet theater where people are like, Hey, I would, you know, and obviously people might be coming there for different things other than like, Hey, I want to do improv or improv sake. Yeah. But in the non improv context, when you're teaching improv, talk to us about like your teaching journey and like what you've learned about teaching improv there that may be a little bit different than teaching yeah. at a magnet. It's about like the output, like what are we ultimately going to do with this? So, you know, in a regular classroom, it's scene work. We're going to be doing a improv show at the end of this, these eight weeks of class that are going to be composed of improvised scenes. And so the improv exercises we're doing, the point of doing them is to help us do better scenes. So, you know, the exercise or game might isolate a certain skill, um, working on character, working on environment, working on emotion, right? And ultimately those things are going to make us more agile, adept improvisers when we're just doing an open scene, right? or an improv form. At a company, I might be using maybe even some of the same exercises, but our ultimate goal is not to get up and then perform and do a show. Our ultimate goal is to pull out some of the kind of deeper lessons from the exercises about listening, agility, creativity, brainstorming, public speaking, empathy, you know, whatever our goal is for that day and whatever the group is looking to work on, we're doing these games not to become the best improvisers, but to really have a deep conversation or about active listening. And to do a game that's going to force you to actively listen very, very, very intently and to get to feel like what that is and then talk about it and, and talk about how we can apply that back to those other contexts where, where that skill is, mm. is very helpful or important. So it's a bit like going to the gym, you know, and kind of working out some of these muscles so that, yeah. you know, like when you pick up a box around your house, it like feels lighter, right? It's like yeah. the ultimate goal is not to like stay in the gym all the time, but but to kind of take these out back out into your job, or you know. So yeah. in, in practice, sometimes it looks very similar. We're doing exercises. We're up on our feet. We're, we're, we're playing. We're having fun. We're laughing. But maybe the conversations about what we're doing are shifting. And the ultimate kind of goal or takeaway is more towards um, how can we let this stuff make an impact in the kind of day-to-day -day thing that I, of what I'm actually doing for my job versus just like, how can we be funny on stage with each other, right? Mm. Rick, well, I'd be remiss not to, we're getting towards the end of time. What is your rondering? I think, I think a lot of what we talked about ended up being kind of about authenticity today, like you know, whether that's on stage as an improviser, trying to just respond authentically to your scene partner, not try to be funny, just kind of build off of them to all the stuff we talked about with like branding and communicating online to public speaking and how to do that effectively. I feel like that ended up being kind of a theme through a lot of these conversations. So it's a weird thing to work on with people because there is no one right way. Like everyone's authentic person and self is kind of different and who we are is always changed by the places we're in, the context we're in. But I don't know, it was cool to hear that theme kind of come up in a lot of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that um, 
everyone you work with in improv probably comes at that. And I would say and bet the best improvisers, whether they're your corporate clients or your improv magnet students, have learned to be more authentic with who they yeah. are. Like that's the like what a wonderful impact to say you show up more with the assets you already have and sh- and being that. That in of itself is a gift. Yeah. Rick, before we end off, what would you like to promote? Social media handles, things you're doing, events happening. Shout it out to the audience. You I've got a $100,000 masterclass that you can pay for. No. Um, <laughs> Ah, man. I run a, re- a retreat. It's a year long retreat up in the woods. Uh, you have to, you can't talk with your family. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. No. I, I do stuff. I teach at the Magnet Theater. I teach classes there. Uh, I perform pretty much weekly with Cornfeld and Andrews for Sunday nights at 730. Uh, we do kind of like an improvised one act play. So it feels like a little more slice of life, life, a little more like eavesdropping in on the characters. It's really fun. And I do workshops with company. If you work at a company and you want me to do workshops, let me know. Otherwise, I'm not going to cold call you as we've established through this. <laughs> you won't hear from me unless yeah. you reach out. <laughs> but yeah, I train on public speaking, on team building, creativity, uh, all that good stuff. Do people find you on LinkedIn? Do you have a website, Rick? You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you yeah. can find me at uh, rickandrewsimprov.com. All that is going to lead to a nice little Zoom conversation with me so or an email. So I guess I, I should have a... I have a flip phone still. So I'm not on Instagram and I'm not on TikTok. Um, and it's great. Look at the, you know what that means? You can spend more time on the things that you love doing. What it really means is I spend more time on my laptop. <laughs> In practicality, that's like my brain is just as broken as everyone else's. I just can't do it on the subway. Yeah. Touche. Touche. Yeah. Rick, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you for the space to be on Ronderings. Um, we had to get Korean barbecue before the end of the year. And yes, um, I just I enjoy getting to know more of your story and who you are. So thank you for showing up today. Thanks, bud. Always a pleasure. All right. Ron Dering's fam, we're out. Peace. Rick Andrews, you never cease to amaze me. We could have been on for another number of hours and we didn't get into a number of topics I wanted to get with you on, but you just have to come back uh, as a guest again and be first repeat guest on Ron Dering's. So you know, thinking about how much your passion for improv exists in every ounce of your being, having improv as a pathway to authenticity, it just makes so much sense in why you believe in teaching it. Because in my own experience and just taking level one improv with you, when I became more of myself rather than just trying to be funny and also listening to others, I got better at improv. So what better leadership lesson than teaching improv? So Rick, Thank you for your genius. Thank you for your love of teaching improv. And check us out on the Ronderings podcast for more episodes. Peace.